Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities, a network of private institutions providing an education that integrates the liberal arts, professional studies, and civic engagement. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. Our podcast speaks with insightful experts about current and future issues affecting higher ed. Thanks for joining us. This episode is the first in a two-part series for the NACU podcast. In part one, I have the chance to be interviewed by colleague and friend David Feingold, president of Chatham University. David is the host of his own podcast, The Future of Higher Education, and I encourage you to check it out. As much as I prefer asking questions, David provided an opportunity to learn more about the New American Colleges and Universities, where we started, what we're thinking about, and where we hope to go. Then, David and I switch places for Episode 2, and I have the pleasure of interviewing him about Chatham University and its storied history, all its current successes in the Steel City, and what's to come. Thanks for joining us for the NACU Podcast. Hello. This is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast and the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm here today with Sean Creighton, my friend and the president of the New American Colleges and Universities, an association of 24 universities from across the United States that we'll we'll learn more about in today's conversation. Sean, great to be with you. David, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Sean, to start out, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? I grew up an hour north of New York City. For those who live in the New York area, that means like Westchester. I was born in Tarrytown, but for others who do not live in New York, yeah, an hour north. And uh, grew up there, graduated from high school. Uh, I went to Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, which was another hour north of where I grew up right on the Hudson. Beautiful campus, uh, great school, and uh, was inspired to continue to study literature. I graduated as an English major, and then I went on to uh, New York University and uh, worked on a master's degree in English and American Lit with a uh, literary theory concentration at the time. And uh, so that's, yeah, that's my area, my part of the country, my family still, they're all there. I didn't realize we grew up so close together. I was in Scarsdale for high school until oh, yeah, my yeah. family moved down to Texas. So how how did a master's in English end up becoming a leader of several different associations of, of colleges and universities? Good question. So, uh, you know, our paths are always so unique and interesting. And uh, I, you know, first was uh, interested in teaching. So I went into the classroom and uh, focused on, uh, well, what I'd been training for, teaching Shakespeare, poetry, college writing one and two, you know, and uh, trying to inspire students, freshmen mostly, through uh, narrative and literary arts. When I moved out to Ohio, uh, I again connected with a local university, was teaching some classes, and I was at an event one night and I overheard somebody say, We're looking for uh, somebody to come in and do our director of development's work while she's on maternity leave. And uh, that was for a nonprofit arts education group. And I, I just turned to her. I was like, oh, you know, I'm doing a couple of things. Just got out here. Happy to do that. How long? She said six months. It turned into like five years. I ended up staying in the position because the person decided to stay at home and uh, really focused on advancement work. And that led to me 
leaving that position after five years to go to uh, Antioch University and help start up a development program at one of their campuses. And then I ended up taking on more responsibility, working with the president directly on a, a variety of initiatives, uh, strategic initiatives to grow enrollment, to just create more efficiencies, all of that. And, and then from there, you know, more university work and then eventually it landing into a, an association uh, in Southwest Ohio, uh, working with over 20 institutions, very different institutions, but working on finding a common agenda you know, working on workforce development issues and and all kinds of really cool strategic initiatives for our region, which brought me to uh, the New American Colleges and Universities uh, just a couple of years ago. It seems actually, in, a, in telling that story, it seems like a very straightforward pathway. <laughs> Sean, tell us when you joined the New American Colleges and Universities and a little bit about what attracted you to the role and the history of the organization. I joined the New American Colleges and Universities in March 2019. And uh, I was attracted first moving from a kind of regional state organization to more of a, a national organization. And also what really attracted me was the, the institutions that made up um, NACU, that they were spread out all over the country, that they were like-minded, like-missioned, and a, a certain type of institution that kind of appealed to me. Um, but it was the uh, that a, integrated approach to learning that really at its core was a liberal arts institution, but had more of a focus on developing professionals and um, being connected to the community and making it an impact through the education that they provide. The history of the organization, I mean, right away, another thing that attracted me to it was that uh, Ernest Boyer, who I had studied when I was doing my doctoral work, uh, who wrote the Scholarship of Engagement, Scholarship Reconsidered, he was there in the beginning and helped found the organization and is accredited for leading a lot of the conversations at that time. And this is a small fact too. Ernest Boyer was uh, born in Dayton, Ohio, which is where we're based. And I was, it was like, wait, too many things are lining up here. <laughs> the founder of this national organization that I'm really attracted to was born here and his parents actually are buried here locally. So there were a number of things happening in the, in the 1990s and this convergence of conversations took place where this uh, uh, it was the uh, the provost at the University of Redlands at the time, Frank Wong, who wrote this landmark essay called The Ugly Ducklings of Higher Education. Hmm. And it received a lot of attention. And he, he was talking about institutions that they were not strictly liberal arts colleges. They were not research universities. They were not large publics. They weren't community colleges. Yet they had this kind of distinctive focus on that. As I kind of mentioned, it's a liberal arts core, undergraduate found residential experience, and more of a practical focus on developing professionals and developing you know the workforce for their region. They weren't elite institutions with a national or global brand and huge endowments, but they were had strong regional brands and were making a big difference in their communities. And a bunch of a uh, select group of provosts came together just to kind of compare notes, talk about one another. And uh, Ernest Boyer helped facilitate that, which then at the end of the day, what emerged was uh, at that time, it was called the, the Associated New American Colleges, ANAC. And then uh, that developed into the New American Colleges and Universities over the years. 
And do you know anything about the choice of that title, particularly the the new, obviously? Now it's more than 25 years since it was founded. That is remained even as the, as the title changed. Well, uh, again, going back to Ernest Boyer, he wrote a piece calling for the new American college at that time. It was published. I mean, you can find it in the Chronicle of Higher Ed today. And it, he was calling for an institution that improved the human condition that focused their energies on addressing uh, economic and social issues and using the resources and the, and the educational power of the institution to address these issues. And it was in that moment, in that declaration, that these institutions recognized themselves. And it, and it has since become, as you know, uh, Mary Marcy has written a book about the different models of small colleges, and it's one of the models in there, the New American College and university model that does this integrated liberal arts, professional studies, and, and community engagement model of education. And so with that sort of bringing together of like institutions, what have been the key roles that the the association has sought to play in terms of adding value to its members? When we look back in our history, we started out in you know the 1990s as an organization that really worked more closely with provosts and faculty. And at, at the core of the organization, we're still an academic consortium. But over the years, we have expanded to focus on working more closely with higher ed leadership, certainly working more closely with presidents, the chief academic officers, but also vice presidents and all the different areas, sort of the C-suite of higher ed. You know, there are a number of things that we do and just facilitating exchange between these institutions and the opportunity to have conversation uh, share strategy, share data in a trusted confidential space. Uh, you know, just managing that itself has been what I hear when I talk to people, um, the value of the organization. And another thing that we do, and we've heard this over and over, we listen really closely in those conversations or in just one-on-one meetings with our campuses to understand what their challenges are and then to create some opportunities that are, are larger than just one institution working on it, but more of the collective approach. And also want to make note that our institutions, they don't compete directly. There might be some overlap in certain areas, maybe in an athletic conference, they're attracting a couple of the same athletes, but otherwise they're not really competing. So again, it goes back to creating that, that trusted and open space uh, for sharing. And could you say a little more about them not competing because there is a distinctive profile of institution you're looking for. So how does NACU bring together like institutions, but not ones that view themselves as competitors? Right. Well, the first thing, proximity. I mean, they're spread out. I mean, that's, and, uh, and also we create an environment. It's an invitation into the group. It's not like someone can just go to our website and sign up and become a member. There's a real process for vetting candidates and making sure that they uh, meet a certain criteria. And, and one of the, those is making sure that they are not directly competing uh, for students or major funding, you know, because that creates, that kind of just doesn't create the environment for truly having open, candid conversations. You know, when you have a competitor in a room, as much as we've moved more in a direction of even competitors focusing on collaboration and how important that is to learn from one another, it still is important just to make sure that we create a, a safe space. And 
One thing I also wanted to mention the other day, I was in a conversation with somebody we're going to have as part of our um, champions series this academic year. And, you know, he was from, he's from a very elite institution and uh, he wasn't familiar with our organization or even our campuses, but he was digging in, he was looking at them. And the first thing he said, he said, wow, these schools, they do everything that matters. And, you know, he just recognized that by learning more about the profiles of a, a new American college and university. That's great to hear. Can you say in terms of those criteria for folks who might be listening and thinking, oh, that sounds, you know, really distinctive. We want to be doing those things that matter. What what are the key things that you're looking for in a member? You've touched on some, the the core of liberal arts and the addition of professional programs, but are there other things? Right. I mean, that obviously is one of the main criteria that there's they're using that integrated educational model. Some of the other, they're, they're non-competitive, as we already mentioned. You know, uh, selectivity, they're not highly selective schools, but they're not also open enrollment campuses. Um, they're sort of moderately selective. Uh, we look for financial stability. Uh, they're not schools that are on the brink of closing. The size of the schools range from roughly 2,000 on the, the smaller side to the high end of 8,000, which is still a small school in the larger context of higher ed when you think about it. But the sweet spot is around three to 4,000. So there's similarities in size. In budgets and endowments, as I mentioned, they don't have large endowments. You know, the average endowment's about 75 million. And so they're similar sized institutions, similar missioned, spread out across the country. And what do you feel, given literally thousands of different colleges and universities in the U.S., very crowded market, what what do you see as the distinctive value these institutions are bringing within the higher ed landscape that's leading students to choose them and for those members not to be struggling too much, even in this very highly competitive environment. What's really interesting, if we went back to when we were founded in the 1990s, the model was, I would say, more unique. Now, today, we're seeing a lot of schools gravitating towards this model of the new American college or university and gravitating towards moving beyond being just a small college, but introducing professional programs and uh, graduate programs I think what's unique about arts is one, we've been working on this for a while now, and some of our institutions have really become the model that our institutions are, they're innovative at their core because they are always looking to uh, address local regional issues uh, through the, the expansion of educational programming, be really connected to their community, still remain a, an open campus in that they attract a diverse body of students they're not serving just elite, wealthy students. Uh, there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity across the students. Uh, we have historically black colleges and universities in our group, Hispanic-serving institutions, and other institutions that just continue to evolve in different ways to be really a strong, important organization, institution in their, in their communities. And for a lot of your tenure at NACU, you know, it, we've been in, in a pandemic, and one of the most challenging times that all of us have gone through in higher ed. What do you see as the role the association played in helping the institutions get through that? And then 
what do you think may be some of the lasting changes that come out of COVID for these institutions or, or society more broadly? I mean, during COVID, the uh, one thing we saw right away, because we're, we are a remote organization, everyone really leaned into one another within our group. We've always had a level of engagement and participation in our programs, but leaned in in a different way to kind of think through the challenges together and share information. Uh, because the organization, we have campuses across the country and COVID was being handled differently based on whether you're in Pennsylvania, New York, California, Texas, Minnesota, like we were getting sort of a national perspective on the way in which the pandemic was being addressed and our institutions could like share local insight which helped our other, you know, other institutions in different states think, think about solutions and also just share contacts. Like this is how we're doing our testing, whatever the issue. I mean, every meeting we had, we have almost 20 learning communities that we managed throughout the year. COVID was the priority topic for an entire year. And it still is. It hasn't gone away. It's still right up there. And then the fallout and the impact of that and how we manage not only through it, but out of it. And those conversations are still going on and will continue. I think one of your new COVID activities, like myself, was launching a podcast. I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> yeah. what have been your sort of favorite moments so far and some insights you've picked up through talking to leaders in, in higher ed? So, yeah, we lost the NACU podcast, um, Connect, Collaborate, Champion. And, you know, our first episode you know, we're certainly talking to higher education leaders, but we wanted to talk to leaders from other industries to get their perspective on things. And we talked to like the director of risk management for the Wendy's Corporation, you know, just to like get his perspective on things. And so the, the variety of uh, leaders that we've talked to, I've really enjoyed that and hearing different perspectives, but also seeing common themes across, you know, leadership. Sometimes, you know, we go in with a very specific set of questions and, and a certain topic, but then in having that discussion, we, we go down, not a rabbit hole, but we go in a different direction that elicits some learning that we did not expect during the podcast. I, I guess I want to turn it back. Like what, what would you say to that question? It's been great for me. I, you know, my focus has been particularly on talking to presidents, leaders who, have either transformed their college or university or pioneered new models in higher ed. And one thing that definitely comes through is, is they tend to be amazing storytellers. Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it makes for a long podcast, but just the ability <laughs> to, to really paint a vivid picture. And I was also, it was interesting to me that the vast majority of those leaders don't come from the elite higher ed institutions. So it sort of points to your your point about the NACU kind of institutions is that, you know, we see that there is, is real talent everywhere and being in places that really focus on delivering a transformational education, I think is, is really powerful. I, I wanted to just wrap up yeah. with one other question for you, which was, we both had a chance to interview on our podcast, uh, Nathan Graw, his work and that of many others like Clay Christensen and whatnot is suggesting that you know, the next 15 to 20 years, if, if the pandemic wasn't tough enough, that with what's coming with demographics, you know, what we know about the sort of overcapacity within the national higher ed system, it's going to be a really 
challenging environment. And so I'm curious what you're anticipating in terms of the biggest trends, the things you're, that we're likely to see and, and how that shapes sort of your thinking about the future of NACU. Yeah, what a great opportunity to talk to Nathan and such a, a humble person too. You know, I, I was just like, you wrote the book that just woke everybody up and, you know, and you could see him like, no, no. I mean, yeah, I, I think it was good timing. I just, I, I was just as, you know, a scientist, a data guy. I'm like, no, Nathan, <laughs> people started paying attention. One quick comment. And, you know, so we, we compare a lot of data. We benchmark a lot of data across the institutions and the institutions appear to be really holding their own in terms of enrollment, very uh, stable with undergraduate education but growing graduate education. And I think that kind of reflects this model of the NACU institutions. They're, they're always looking ahead, looking for new educational programs to expand into, strengthening the ones that they already have. They're, they're growth-minded. They're, they're not trying to go from 2,000 to 10,000, but they're just steadily growing as an organization. And I feel like that's why they've been in a better position coming out of covid and uh, with that mindset, we'll continue to grow going forward as some of these challenges come our way. They're dependent on, obviously, undergraduate students, but I think it's that blend and also the type of student, the uh, pre-professional students and those that want to move into graduate education, attracting those students that's creating stability. You know, for us as an organization, I go back to like, we just, we listen very closely. Uh, we are talking about doing more leadership C-suite executive exchanges and also doing it more on a campus-to-campus basis so that we can really pair up some institutions and they can have even deeper conversations. Uh, So while we are expanding our learning communities, creating more opportunities on a broader sense, we're also really wanting to hone in and get into a deeper level of conversations so we can talk about data and strategy and learn from one another. And you know, collaboration, any opportunities for innovative collaborations that advance our institutions, we're, we're there. Whether, you know, we can facilitate them, make connections, help lead them, those are areas that we're going to be exploring further. A special thank you to David Feingold for including NACU on his podcast, The Future of Higher Education. Be sure to tune in for episode two as we continue the conversation. And I get to ask President Feingold the questions. Until then, be well. Thanks for listening to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the NACU podcast. As president of the New American Colleges and Universities, I'm honored to work with our network of innovative campuses and champion the belief that a comprehensive liberal, professional, and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about the NACU campuses, visit nacu.edu.